This is Periodically Political, brought to you by Elect STEM. We bring you stories of where science intersects politics. Your hosts today will be Darren Anderson and Monica Stoller. Today, we're excited to be joined by Dr. Mona Niemer, Canada's Chief Science Advisor. Before becoming the Chief Science Advisor, Dr. Niemer was Professor and Vice President of Research at the University of Ottawa and Director of the school's Molecular Genetics and Cardiac Regeneration Laboratory. She holds a PhD in Chemistry from McGill University and did postdoctoral training in molecular biology at the Institut de Recherche Clinique de Montréal and Columbia University. Dr. Niemer is a member of the Order of Canada, a fellow of the Academy of Sciences of the Royal Society of Canada, a Knight of the Ordre National de Québec, and a Knight of the French Republic's Ordre National de Mérite. Uh, welcome, Dr. Niemer. Thank you for having me. So you were previously in academia before moving to serve as Canada's chief science advisor. And here we're really trying to tell people stories about how um, people that are involved in science can get more politically active, whether that's running for politics or getting involved in policy. So can you tell us a little bit about your origin story? How did you start that transition and, and what, what drove you to make that transition? Well, like everything, you know, in my life, it's uh, actually opportunities that, uh, that uh, you know, came by. And uh, um, at, at, the, at the beginning, I wanted to be a scientist because I just like wanted to make things better. Like, you know, like we all want to change the world. And then I quickly realized that um, doing great science is, uh, you know, is, is fantastic. But that actually other people like administrators and governments uh, control uh, a, a lot your life and what you're able to do and not do. So I, I got involved in academic leadership because uh, it was really important in terms of the, the, the settings and what you're able to do as a researcher and, and a mentor. And uh, from there on, I, um, um, you know, mysteriously got appointed to the council of the Medical Research Council, the precursor for the Canadian Institute for Health Research. Uh, and it was quite an eye-opener and a learning experience, of course, being on that council. But I also realized, you know, how much impact uh, one could have uh, in terms of shaping science and enabling science and research across the country. So that was, you know, quite a remarkable um, experience for me that uh, made me realize that, uh, you know, you can be places actually in government where you can really help shape things for the future. And uh, I guess that was a, a turning point for me. After that, as a vice president research, of course, I interacted quite a bit with, uh, with government officials, both at the provincial and, and federal uh, level. And, um, yeah, I would say that uh, it, it, we, we only realize, you know, how much can be done, you know, once we start getting a, an eye view of what's uh, behind, you know, the, the, the curtains that we, we don't know. It's funny, almost everybody that we've spoken to so far has been really motivated by impact. Um, and that seems to be a major component of what drives everybody into getting involved in either politics or policy. Absolutely. That's, uh, it's, you, you know, it's, uh, it's certainly not for, uh, you know, adding a line on your CV. I would not, uh, <laughs> you know, encourage that. <laughs> it did sound like you had a relatively smooth transition from scientist to sort of science advisor. You are Canada's chief science advisor. Could you tell us a little bit about what your day looks like in that role? 
Um, my day, uh, you mean my days, th th there aren't two days that are the same. Uh, so it's, uh, it's another, uh, you know, great experience because there's just so much variety and, and so many uh, different activities that uh, you realize need to be accomplished to be able to have, you know, some, um, I guess, uh, moral influence uh, on, on how things go. So, so one day it would be meetings, uh, you know, advisory uh, group meetings, uh, and then some interactions with senior um, public servants or politicians. Uh, other days, uh, you know, I would be reading, finishing some reports, uh, engaging with my colleagues outside of government. Uh, I'd be meeting with my my own team. Other times, I have uh, calls with my international counterparts, and uh, and then I'm on panels. I'm doing interviews, trying to do some communication. So it's it's you know it's it's uh, very very every day is different from the previous and the next one. Oh, that sounds great. Uh, you mentioned that you're meeting with politicians often. When you meet with politicians, do you bring up the topics or topics you feel are very relevant? Or do you sort of react to what legislators want you to advise them on? Well, my uh, I guess my role is to do both, uh, is to be responsive to uh, uh, to any um, inquiries from uh, from the prime minister, from any cabinet uh, minister, uh, but also to be advising on, uh, on on science in in general, you know how to improve science, how to make sure that science and science advice are part of the uh, discussions for decision making. So for for these, you really have to be proactive mm -hmm. uh, because you have to really foresee what may be happening. Just like a, as an example, uh, when when the before the pandemic was actually declared a pandemic uh, back in February 2020 now, uh, I could see, you know, what was happening in the world and through interactions with my international colleagues. It was, you know, clear that I will have to be providing advice to government. So I put together an expert panel multidisciplinary with, uh, you know, d d different people from uh, uh, virology all the way to behavioral scientists and uh, mathematicians, um, um, modelers. Uh, and that was all done before uh, WHO actually declared that this is, uh, that SARS-CoV-2 is a pandemic. So uh, that's, you know, just like an example. Other times, like I respond to uh, requests uh, for, uh, for example, how to use science in aquaculture management, uh, how to manage uh, large science facilities and so on. So it, it's both really. But I would say more on the proactive side. Right. No, and that's, it's great to know, like, even though we're sort of on the tail end of the pandemic, that you did put those protocols into place in your own staff. And I think it's really encouraging for our listeners to know that that was there. And that is likely why we had a relatively good response in Canada compared to any other country in the world. Um, you are a scientist. So as a scientist, do you see when you're engaging with elected officials that people who have a STEM background interact a little bit differently than those who don't? You know, to, to be very candid, it's difficult for me to, to say because I don't have the numbers that will allow me to conclude with a statistical difference. Unfortunately, there are so few uh, elected officials who have STEM backgrounds. 
but for sure, when I interacted with uh, with MPs and uh, or senators or cabinet ministers who do have a STEM uh, background, um, it, it is different, right? It's uh, I mean, you know, you, you they, they have a better sense um, of, for example, inf- the the integrity of the information sources. Uh, you know, what certain findings or certain news in the media mean or don't mean. So, you know, clearly it would be a bit different. But I think, um, as I'm sure you appreciate, we all bring our, uh, you know, what we experience, what we learned, who we interacted with into the decisions that we make and also our perspectives uh, of issues and of uh, questions and, and problems that need to be tackled. And this is why I think that diversity of expertise is also extremely important, just like, you know, diversity of, you know, cultural diversity, linguistic diverse, diversity of gender. So I think um, I, I would say that, um, you know, Canada would, uh, would, would gain a lot by having more uh, folks with the STEM background be part of public life. That makes a lot of sense. And and you can really see the impact that having a CSA has had on the pandemic, as, as Monica mentioned. So a CSA type position has come and gone in Canadian politics, both federally and provincially. Um, how do you think we can ensure that a position like yours survives government transitions and kind of gets deeply embedded into the fabric of Canadian politics? This is just so important and this is essential. And if the pandemic has taught us anything, it's about the importance of, uh, of science in just so many different aspects of our, of our lives. And also the importance of expert advice and mm-hmm. sort of, you know, independent uh, uh, advice. Because you you can be sure that there will be a lot of political advice and a lot of you know other things, but if you're missing the the, the science advice, which is foundational, uh, then I think it's it's uh, you know it's it's a tough situation. So it is certainly my hope, and it was my hope when I took the position uh, three and a half years ago now uh, that the position be enshrined in legislation that uh, you know there will be a successor to me and actually a whole you know slew of successors because i really think that it's it's important that this position become part of the fabric of of government and what's unhelpful you know when you you restart all the time uh, different structures different machineries and so on is that the other people you know who know exactly um, you know, how the hierarchy goes and the accountability goes, just don't know how to interact with this sort of newcomer and this, this add-on, if you want. And so, so science advice, as a result, will not be, you know, properly integrated in the workings of, of government uh, f- from the get-go. So it's just so essential, I think, that we, um, uh, we have this position in, enshrined in legislation, uh, and um, and properly, of course, you know, staffed and mandated uh, with um, uh, and and even I would say the the how it's um, how it's integrated in be it you know uh, science uh, policy science advice in normal time, but also for uh, uh, 
emergencies and for uh, special, not projects, but special initiatives. For example, mm-hmm. you know, how, how are we going to get to net, uh, net zero, right? Uh, by 2050, I think mm-hmm. this is a huge opportunity for for integrated science uh, and science advice as well. So, oh, that's that's great. And I know um, one of the things we're passionate about is ensuring that science is is cross partisan. Uh, that it's something that every political party at every level of government's engaged in. And we had we had Preston Manning on our show recently, and, and he's passionate about these types of topics as well. And and we talked about different models for the CSA. So in Britain, it's attached to parliament versus here where it reports to cabinet. Do you think um, long run as as kind of this office evolves, do you think there's an ideal way to do it? Or is it just more important that an office like this exists and that we, you know, we build them provincially and in individual departments and and ultimately the form of the office is less important? Well, you know, I'll just say that in in general, I do believe in evergreening uh, things and uh, especially when you're starting something uh, new. So you do have to give yourself the opportunity to, uh, you know, change, add, uh, modify, update uh, as need be. So uh, I think it's, it's really important that we, you know, get started. Uh, With respect to the UK, um, in fact, they have uh, they have a, a an equivalent position as mine, a science advisor, a government science advisor they, they call it, who reports to the prime minister and uh, what they call the cabinet office. So it would be like PCO, PMO, in, in our case. But there is as well an uh, a, a, an office, um, a, you know, office. In uh, that's part, you know, in Parliament, that's you know, basically reports or serves both the equivalent of our um, the two chambers uh, of the House. Um, so I think that uh, you need you need both. You know how they would interact with each other's, uh, you know, is something that can be definitely worked out. And clearly, it's when you're advising the executive branch and when you're advising the legislative branch it's maybe you know uh, like different in the sense of um the the scope of of the advice that you're providing you know uh, whether it's on general areas that need attention general initiatives or on you know specific actions as well makes sense I want to sort of shift gears a little bit and ask you a few questions about science communication and your perspective on it. As we know, there typically are hurdles between science and politics and policymaking, especially when it comes down to communicating things to the public. Um, At the time of the recording, we are sort of on the tail end of the pandemic. Could you share how your role has changed during COVID and what sort of science communication tactics have changed? Yeah, well, the role changed immensely <laughs> with the with the pandemic. It's uh, you know the, the the pandemic became the as you can imagine the the, the overwhelming activity uh, on, on many fronts, both in terms of uh, the science advice itself, but also science uh, communication, and at times communication with the public, at other times communications with the with the elected officials and the senior public, uh, you know, uh, uh, servants, uh, but also communicating with the scientific community and encouraging them actually to communicate, um, sometimes providing a little bit of, you know, uh, some advice or coaching. 
um, it's, um, you know, scientists are not necessarily used to communicating uh, like this in, in, in real time uh, on a major news outlet uh, and, and so on. And there are some, of course, sensitivities in terms of, you know, language or, or creating um, vaccine hesitancy, for example, or, or you know, m- maintaining trust in, in uh, government decisions versus, uh, you know, uh, generating actually distrust uh, and feeding into disinformation. So it was very complex uh, when you think about it. Uh, and... Um, the, the thing is, at the beginning, uh, you know, people were, were not necessarily wanting uh, to uh, to do so much communication for many reasons. Uh, first of all, there were so many unknowns, so much uncertainties, uh, and um, science uh, scientists like to communicate, you know, precise uh, with precise language, with you know, precise facts, and so on. Uh, but in fact, it was essential that uh, the public hears from the experts and the scientists because there was already so much disinformation, you know, happening uh, just like around the globe and around the, the net, of course. Uh, and I think that uh, some of them were reluctant to start, but uh, uh, actually saw in it, uh, got great satisfaction from sharing knowledge uh, with the public and contributing to enhancing sophistication in terms of understanding of the pandemic uh, with the public. So, so I think that collectively, you know, we've achieved something that is quite remarkable. And uh, I really hope that we are going to build on the momentum and not sort of, you know, uh, forget about it and just like go back to communicating only among ourselves. Absolutely. You brought up some fantastic points there. And one point in particular I want to touch on is what sort of strategies did you learn about emotionally charged situations? There's a lot of emotions flowing when there's a pandemic. Everyone's scared. Everyone's nervous. No one knows what's going on. So what sort of communication tactics as a scientist did you pick up on there? Uh, well, yeah, there there were a lot of emotions, you know, in communications. There were a lot of emotions in meetings, including among scientists, of course, right, mm-hmm. uh, and experts. And uh, there were a lot of uh, stress um, and uh, you know a- anxiety about doing the right thing uh, with the public servants as well and and the politicians. So, yeah, there the, the were no laid back situations. I can assure mm-hmm. you that. So, so I really had to remind myself uh, and others uh, at times, especially, you know, the scientists that, you know, let's stick to the science. Okay. Let's stick to the science. Let's say what we know, what we don't know. If we're extrapolating and we had to extrapolate, you know, Mm -hmm. from, from other viruses, other situations and so on, let's explain why we think this is sort of, the, the the best guess if you want the most educated uh, yeah. guess and and in so doing uh, you, you you maintain understanding you maintain trust because otherwise uh, it's really easy to get emotional number one number two it's easy to you, you know start for scientists for science advisors like myself our job is not you know to make the rules or to criticize like the the, the rules or the policy you know, our job is to provide the facts. And as long as we stick to the facts, 
I think that we're on the right side of uh, of history, and I can I can say you know in a very humble way that uh, you know this has proven to be the best approach. No, for sure, and it seemed a lot of people were becoming more open to listening to the science facts. Something I noticed throughout the pandemic was the public doesn't really understand that science is evolving and changing. And that, yeah, policies, advice changes sort of as the pandemic goes, as we learn different things. Is there something that scientists could do better when it comes to engaging and educating the public in terms of science communication? Well, look, I think that, uh, and I've been saying it for a long time, that we need to do a better job of of having a, a permanent dialogue with the public and of explaining the scientific method. Not necessarily, you know, chemistry, biology, you know, physics courses and so on, but just the, the, the scientific method. Because once you understand it, once the public understand this, then they're going to be equipped and empowered to question the sources of information and to follow, you know, as decisions uh, change or as things evolve. If, if, if I can, you know, say one mistake that has been made in terms of communication with the public in this pandemic has been underestimating the public's appetite for information and for knowledge. So th- th- there were, you know, at times um, on, on, you know, paternalistic, I would say, uh, approaches sort of, you know, do this, don't do that, don't ask me why. And when things change, I'll let you know. Uh, I, I think that people really underestimated uh, that the public actually can follow us. That once we tell them, you know, here's what we know today, here's what we don't know today. Mm-hmm. And, you know, here are the options. And by the way, these options might change in a month or two. I think that, you know, they can follow this. And in fact, you would be better off because just as an example, you know, now we have like with a majority or soon a majority of the population fully vaccinated. What do we hear all the time? People requesting, what can I do? What can't I do? Mm-hmm. Well, well, that's, that's sort of a little bit um, surprising when you think about it, because if we had equipped people to understand why we ask them to do or not do certain things, they wouldn't need now to ask us, what can I do or I can't do? they'll be able to, to deduce it for themselves. So I think this is really important because we have to trust people that people, you know, uh, most people at least are responsible folks uh, and, um, you know, can follow logic and understand where things are going. They, they do make, you know, everyone makes decisions for themselves and their families every day. So th- they're capable of this. We just need to help them and give them the tools to enable them to, um, to to follow us and also to, to become, you know, part of the decision-making and part of the science culture uh, and evidence, you know, in decision-making. 
Yeah, I think sometimes scientists believe that decisions are made entirely based on the science, but really it's the intersection of science and individual values or values as a society that is is so important. And to your point, if you edu- if you provide people the tools, then they can use those in combination with their own values and their own risk tolerance and and that type of thing to make make effective decisions that work for them and their families. Exactly. It's you know about trade-offs, right? And we do these Every, every day when we decide, you know, wh- what we want to purchase and what's more priority for us uh, and our, our families. So uh, I think yeah, it's, it's the same. And uh, a society that better understands, um, you know, science and evidence, I think is, uh, is a society that is better equipped also for democracy and for, you know, uh, proper uh, public involvement in, in the democratic process. I completely agree. All right. So the last question uh, we have for you is we have a lot of um, people that listen to this podcast that are curious about getting involved in politics, um, but maybe don't know how to do so. I invite you to share an inspirational statement or story to just for anybody who's thinking about it. What would you say to somebody who um, who's considering getting politically activated uh, that's listening to this? Well, first of all, I would say, you know, follow your intuition and the opportunities that are offered to you. And uh, there is nothing that's irreversible in life. If you don't like it, you can always do something else. But uh, but I can tell you that, uh, you know, there is just so much that can be uh, accomplished for the good of society, for, for the good of the public uh, and the country by getting involved uh, in, in public life. Right now, um, I find that there aren't enough um, scientists and engineers who are who are seeking office? Uh, I think in our parliament it's less than ten percent who have STEM background, so that's not quite representative of the Canadian population. Uh, I would say that things um, are maybe a little bit better, but not where they should be at the level of the public service. Uh, so we do need to have um, uh, people in policy and in leadership who do have. Uh, also a science and engineering background for all the reasons that we just discussed uh, in terms of diversity, but also because in many ways, people from STEM are uh, solution oriented mm-hmm. uh, and uh, they're able to sort of dissect the the question, the hypothesis, you know, uh, see the options and so on. Uh, and I think it's um, these are extremely valuable contributions uh, to the country and to society at large. So I would say, you know, please get involved at, you know, there's so many levels. Like I said, I, I got in when, when I saw what you could actually accomplish when you're on a board uh, of a granting council. So uh, so there are opportunities to be on, on, on these boards. There are opportunities uh, to get uh, involved at local levels, municipal, you know, provincial um, levels, even in your own university. Uh, people usually from the faculties of science and engineering uh, don't run for seats on the board or at Senate, uh, etc. So I think we need to change the, um, you know, the narrative in the country. Uh, there's nothing that says that you need to be a lawyer or a social scientist. Uh, to be in in these uh, positions, they they do make decisions that have as much science in them as uh, 
you know, uh, public policy. And I think the other way around can be just as valuable. And it's this, uh, you know, mixing of people with different backgrounds and different perspective that is uh, going to be the, 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 you know, the most valuable thing that we can do for the future of the country. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for that inspirational statement. And thank you for spending the time with us here today and uh, helping our listeners understand more about your office and and where some of the impact um, scientists can really have on society. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much for for doing this. Uh, I look forward to to listening uh, to to the outcome. But above all, I look forward to engaging more of my colleagues from the STEM disciplines in public uh, life. Excellent. And so for our listeners, uh, thank you for listening today. Uh, If you could, please rate and review this podcast wherever you get this podcast. It helps more politically curious scientists and engineers discover the show. Thank you. Thank you.